0: International Podcast Day, everyone. I am Glenn the Geek, founder of the Horse Radio Network and host of Horses in the Morning. We have an award winning episode for you today, but before we get to that, I wanted to thank everyone involved in the making of Horses in the Morning and making it the leading podcast in the horse world. We are the third longest running daily podcast in the world with almost 3,000 episodes. It truly takes a village to make that happen, and the most important thing in that village is you. Thank you for being the best listeners in podcasting, and of course, thank you especially to our auditors, who are truly the best support group we could ever have, and we really appreciate you guys. You are super fans, and uh, you you make it a happy place in the auditor room. Thank you for that. Our sponsors are also simply the best. They have believed in us since the beginning. We only sell products we believe in, and I think that is why so many of the sponsors have been with us for so long. They sell quality stuff. ...that we are proud to represent. I would also like to thank the following. Our guest Booker and Glenn Wrangler, Coach Jen. Producers are from Flintstone Media, Jemmy and George. Hosts of all the uh, different episodes and Horses in the Morning, of course. Jamie Jennings, Coach Jen. Alex from the Mustang Heritage Foundation. Dr. Wendy of The Driving Show. Karen of The Endurance Show. Mary of The Training Episode. Christy with the CHA, Tara on fox hunting, Sarah with Horse Illustrated, and finally Kayla with Sales and Breeding. And thank you to all of our fill-in hosts as well, Lisa, Debbie, Wendy, and many of our auditors who have filled in over the last year. Okay, let's get on with the show. Recently, I was at the American Horse Publication Awards. HP is the Journalists of the Horse World. We all get together and have a conference once a year, and they give industry awards for journalism, photography, and podcasting. This year, there were 20 entries in the podcasting category, more than ever before. Usually, it was only Horse Radio Network shows. And I'm happy to report that HRN took three of the top five spots— Horses in the Morning took fifth for the episode where Jamie got the letter from the Queen. And today, I want to play for you the two other shows from the Horse Radio Network that won awards. Getting third place was Helena's Stall Stable, and getting second was Nikki's Take the Reins. I'm going to play those for you back to back. Congratulations to both of them for the hard work they put into their show. Well done, ladies. Well, Stall Stable starts now, and Take the Reins begins at about an hour and five minutes. You're listening to The Stall and Stable Show Ideas for Happy Horsekeeping.
2: There's a wonderful surge in horse adoptions this year. It's never enough, but it's something. Many rescue horses, however, are in poor health, and that leaves the adopters struggling to rehabilitate, support, and nurture the horses back to good physical and mental health. This recovery process can be very confusing and the information available that's specific to rehabilitation is limited. My guest today is Dr. Stacy Boswell, an equine veterinarian who recently published a book called The Ultimate Guide to Horses in Need. I talk with Dr. Boswell today about some of the most common issues facing rescued horses and how we as caregivers can best support their return to good health. Listen in. This is episode 48 of The Stall Unstable Show, brought to you by Lucas Equine Equipment on Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Helena Harris. I hope you'll support our sponsors as they make this podcast possible. Our sponsors this week are, of course, Lucas Equine Equipment and Airlight USA, makers of shredded cardboard bedding. Whether you're building a new barn, renovating an old one, or just replacing a few stall doors, Lucas Equine Equipment is the place to go first. Why? Because they're experts in creating barn components that are not only beautiful and sturdy, but super safe as well. Trust me when I say that you will find no other company that is as thoughtful in their product design as the folks at Lucas Equine. From stall fronts in every shape and size to innovative latches that are easy to operate and considerately placed for safety. Even if all you need is an upgrade to your barn windows, start right here in the USA, because that's where all Lucas Equine equipment is made. Visit them online at www.lucasequine.com and get inspired. Dr. Stacey Boswell grew up in the Southern Rockies of New Mexico. She's been a practicing equine veterinarian for over 14 years. After graduating from vet school, Dr. Boswell was a postdoctoral research associate in the Comparative Orthopedic Laboratory at Cornell University. And then she completed a large animal surgery residency at the University of Tennessee. The intense specialty training in surgery and equine lameness evaluation and treatment culminated in her qualifying for and passing a very rigorous examination from the American College of Veterinary Surgeons thus earning her diplomat status as a large animal surgeon. Needless to say, this woman knows what she's doing. Dr. Boswell and her husband raise performance-bred quarter and American paint horses that they use for trail riding, packing, and hunting. Dr. Boswell has so much to say, and she says it beautifully about horses in need and how you and I can help. Let's welcome her to the show. Well, hi, Dr. Boswell, and thank you so much for joining me on Stall and Stable. Hi, Helena. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I have to say a big thanks for getting up early. You are not on the East Coast. Tell us where you are.
3: I am in Montana. Um, Currently, we are in the beautiful summer here, um, and I'm waiting for our cold winter to start pretty soon, even though it's just August. In
2: cold weather climates, we... Time is never our friend. We're always working toward preparing for the next season, aren't we? We sure are. We're talking about horses in need today, which can mean a lot of different things. Um, And as a veterinarian, you have seen a lot, I'm sure, in your practice. Give our listeners and and me a, a little bit of background about yourself as a horsewoman and as a veterinarian. How did you get started with horses?
3: Well, I did not have horses when I was very young. Uh, As a junior in high school, we moved to, my family moved to a new house and it actually came with a horse that had not been out of his round pen in a few years. Um, And after a few horse trades, we found something that was suitable for me and I found somebody to help me learn. Um, But the more that I've been around horses, the more magical they always are and always have been for me for years you know, in my younger years, I was super enthralled with all the lingo and the words that go with them, you know, anatomy words like cannon bone or spavin or pastern or the saddle parts like latigo and cantle. Um, I was super fortunate after I graduated from college to work with an excellent veterinarian and he really encouraged me to apply to veterinary school, which was the right choice because I, I cannot imagine doing anything else. <laughs> I do live in... Yeah, I do live in practice in Montana. My husband and I take our horses, um, and we also now have two mules camping and packing. So that is a way we've found to have both horse time and family time. Um, and many of my clients are outdoor people, and they hunt or guide as well up here. And I also have quite a few individual clients who own horses or have rescued horses or help horses in transition. So that's where I'm at now.
2: It sounds like you have a nice, balanced... Life. I like the fact that you incorporate your family time and your horse time. It kind of sets your your head straight when you need it too. Absolutely, and I can get out of cell phone range. It's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the folks at Horse and Rider Books sent me your book, The Ultimate Guide to Horses in Need. Um, well, actually, they they sent me a couple of titles by email. They said, "What do you What do you think? What do you What are you interested in?" And. The title of your book really popped out at me because horses in need. To me, I can't see a horse that's not in need. I can look at five horses, and the one who's got some kind of issue or is suffering in some way or needs has some need that's not being met stands out to me, and um, you wrote a whole book about this. With all the horses in need, what inspired you to put information about taking care of them Into a book. This must have been a pretty big project. This was a huge project. Um,
3: This project existed in my head for about three years before I started writing it, and it took two years of hard effort for writing. Um, It has 225 pictures in it, which I pared down from about 5,000. Wow. The oldest picture in the book, the oldest picture in the book, I actually took in 2008. Um, So I've been going along and looking at these horses, and sometimes it's just like, wow, that is a really good example of this particular medical issue. And sometimes it's like, man, we really need to document this because this other people can learn from this. Um, really, the inspiration is that through my surgical residency training, I've lived and practiced veterinary medicine in nine states now, and I, everywhere I've been in the United States, there have been horses that are neglected or they get in a bad situation because a family member, you know, passes away and the, you know, the family that inherits the horses, either they don't know what to do or it's just not their thing or they're tied up in other economic issues or whatever the situation is, but it happens all over the country. It's not just in Montana. It's not just in New Mexico. It's not just in Tennessee. Um, It's all over the country. And and really the the event that lit a fire under me to really get things going um, was a case that I saw in New Mexico where the people were retired and they they had a horse that they really loved. I mean they did really love this horse, but they just got um, in an economic situation that they could do to things outside of their control, and they tried several different routes to get this horse the care she needed and they weren't able to, they weren't able to figure it out or, you know, the places that they called weren't able to get them the resources they needed. And ultimately what happened is, you know, you see the skinny horse when you drive by and so you call animal control, you call the authorities. And so that's what happened. And as a veterinarian, I went over there and the horse was starving, Um, but the people weren't able to take care of themselves either. And ultimately in the end the horse ended up dying And the people ended up potentially losing their home because they couldn't pay all of their bills. So it was just that situation was so sad. I thought we have got to get something out there to help sort of explain what happens and why some of these horses get in these bad situations. But also when we want to help, let's do something that's useful. Let's keep horses in their homes when they have homes. Let's educate people. If I have I do have some clients here and I've had clients in the past. They go to the auctions and they pick up horses, but let's let's pick up horses we can help and let's let's make sure we're getting let's make sure we're meeting all of their needs and getting them the necessary care. And there's there were no guidelines. There was nothing consolidated that that takes you from beginning to end. And there's very few books out there that talk about both medical needs and potential behavioral issues, which in horses in transition, those things are almost always juxtaposed together.
2: I have learned that firsthand, um, bringing a horse in need home for the first time for myself. We'll get to that. Um, Before we started recording, um, Dr. Boswell, you and I were talking about, I had asked you about the emotional fortitude it takes to be involved in helping horses in need. And we, that is a very diplomatic way of putting it. Horses in need, horses in transition. Um, what that really means in a lot of cases is horses who are suffering, some suffering terribly. And, you know, putting a book together, to me, is empowering folks like me. And we can do something. We can prevent the suffering by learning by educating ourselves by paying attention by taking care of ourselves we can stop the suffering by getting involved and you give us this step by step guide which again is is very empowering i think one of the things that makes helping horses in need challenging is that we don't understand how they got to that point like you said you know sometimes it's about an economic situation Or sometimes it's about denial. People have a problem uh, or they're in over their heads and they don't really want to accept that and so their animals suffer as a result. What are some of the top things that you have seen that contribute to a horse's decline in well-being? For example, economic decline, um, perhaps ignorance is another one. What are the things that you see consistently come up as the cause for horses who may be suffering?
3: I really appreciate that you bring up people sometimes can't can't recognize or don't see um, because that's part of a much bigger social issue. You know, and so as humans, it's important that we take care of the humans first because without humans, there's no to take care of the horses. So being able to recognize that sometimes people get in a bad situation and it's not purposeful, um, like the couple I talked about early in the book and we just chatted about, they they lost their retirement funds when the economy crashed. It was a private company that the man had worked for. And so that's outside of their control. And so sometimes there are things outside of people's control. Or we, you know, there are places where we see um, somebody who has more horses than they can care for. Mm-hmm. And that can be, you know, that hoarding situation, that's actually a mental illness, so how can we get better mental health care, both to that individual, but to everybody as a whole? Um, because those those underlying being able to recognize in a non judgmental way that some of these situations are not purposeful can help us reach out to people and then really be able to help their horses. So um, it's not uncommon in areas of the country where there's pretty good grass. Um, in rural areas, where you know you are the second, third, fourth generation on a piece of land, and historically, people have sort of bought and sold horses and had horses and trained horses, and they've been an asset. But as our use for horses changed over the years, it can become a situation where somebody loses their job, the economy is down, the rescues are full, and the money it takes for care is then unaffordable. So if you can't feed your family, there's no way to be able to buy food or hay, much less have your colts castrated so they're not out there continuing to reproduce. And then just talking about euthanasia and disposal, you know, for me to go out on a farm call and do a euthanasia for a horse and then have our services pick up the horse's body for aftercare, that can be somewhere between four and $700. And so that can be an unaffordable cost. So then, then if you have the choice of feeding your kids or euthanizing your horse, you're going to feed your kid. So there's some places where there's some good assistance out there for people. Um, the United Horse Coalition has lots of resources, but also just recognizing when your neighbors are in a situation and they just need a little help, um, you know, then we can help the horses. So that's the primary thing is being able to recognize when, when we can help and making sure the people are taken care of and making sure we understand that sometimes there are parts that are outside of people's control. I mean, it's really easy to look at a group of horses and say, well, they shouldn't have them if they can't take care of them. But you don't know all the things that led up to that right. or how they acquired them. Right.
2: So we get judgmental. I mean, it, it's because it's it's kind of like that's our emotional response to seeing this. Like, how could anybody let this happen? And that's actually the question we have to ask ourselves really and truly, not just using exactly it right. as, a, as a question to start blame, but really, how how does this happen? One of the things that I took away from 9-11, believe it or not, is um, the importance of see something, say something. If we can prevent some kind of catastrophe by speaking up, that we should. Now, of course, there's a line that we walk. You can go over that line and say too many things or step in where you really shouldn't mind your own business. Um, But I think that it's important for us to practice speaking up and saying something diplomatically and kindly, but still speaking up because things that go unsaid will directly correlate to horses who suffer, I think. Um, So if there's a takeaway from this conversation, listeners, it's don't be afraid to speak up, but practice speaking up diplomatically and with kindness. That's really your in. That's what's going to get people to hear you. If you're pointing or shaking a finger at someone because their horse is too skinny, they're going to shut you out. They're not going to listen. But if you've got a little script that's easy or or it's palatable to the ears, then you may actually have a chance of um, getting this person to open their eyes and say, you know what? I don't need another horse. Or I only have three stalls. I shouldn't have seven horses kind of thing. I mean, this is not something easy
3: we're talking about, right? It is one of those things that is simple, but it is not easy. And so you know, I think that's a great suggestion. Have a little script or practice what you say or think about what you're going to say. I have to really think about what I say because I'm a pretty straightforward and blunt person. And sometimes sometimes that can be a little tough to be on the receiving end of. But I do, like, I really want to help. I really want to help. And so the only way to do that is to help the other person on the receiving end be receptive. And And there are... There are times to, that we do go to the authorities and have them intercede on a horse's behalf. Um, and that can be tough because the laws are highly variable from state to state and the authorities are busy, but it does give us a place where we can go in and say, okay, this is not working. Sometimes that the end result from that is not that the people lose all the animals, but it's that we can get them the help they need. So that definitely, that's definitely really important.
2: Let's talk about, the Five Freedoms. This is brought up early in the book, um, in Chapter 1. And again, they're simple, but not that easy to execute on. Let's start with, with number one. This is basic stuff, uh, but it can get complicated. Freedom from hunger and thirst.
3: So so just to give a little background on the history of these, they, these five freedoms that we're going to talk about originated in Great Britain in the late 1960s through some legislation by the Farm Animal Welfare Council. And there are some modern groups that think that these five freedoms don't go far enough, but they are simply stated guidelines for basic animal care. Um, And and I think they apply to people as well. Um, But freedom from hunger and thirst, you want to make sure your horses always have access to fresh water. And we want to make sure we maintain their diet appropriately. So that may mean as a horse ages or a horse has medical problems, that we are going to change their diet. So putting your 32-year-old horse out in front of a round bale and watching him continue to decline and get thin, that is not, um, you have not provided freedom from hunger and thirst. That horse is hungry. He has a hay bale, but it's not access to food that he can use. So, you know,
2: that's really basic, freedom from hunger and thirst. Um, and it's, yeah. you know, it's not just about what they're actually putting in their mouths. I have a, I brought home a six-year-old thoroughbred mare. She was unraced, but she was being kept in something of a hoarding situation. She was in a very small paddock with five other horses and mm-hmm. a round bale. And she was low man on the totem pole. And a thoroughbred. And and a thoroughbred. When I got her, she had a body score of two, maybe two and a half if you looked at her in a good light, so understanding what your horses are getting you're and you know that that round bale, um you think it's fine, except for the horse who can't get in there because she's she's bullied out of it, so paying attention and then for me, I ask my vet you know when I don't know what to feed my horse, the first person I go to is my veterinarian. Some of us, I am guilty of this as well, go onto Facebook and these groups and the internet, and I search for information, but I look for credible sources. But your veterinarian is really the place to go first.
3: Absolutely. You know, I think part of the trouble with, with the internet is that there is really good information out there, but there's also a fair amount of misinformation out there, and both uh, both things are presented with a fair amount of confidence. And so if you really don't know the answer to the question, it can be tough to sort through that and figure out what's what. The nice part about your veterinarian is that for the most part with horses, your veterinarian has probably been to your house. And so they have a better picture of what you have going on. So when we're looking for that empathy for the people involved, um, and they have, a better idea of how your setup works. So, you know, you have a six-year-old off the track thoroughbred and then let's say you have another older horse and then you have a 10-year-old quarter horse. All of those horses have different needs, but, you know, you can, it's easy to say on on Facebook or whatever, oh, well, you just feed these differently. But until you're there and you look at, okay, well, there's two main pastures, and then There's this barn and this run-in shed and sort of figure out how you can separate everybody and how many times a day we can do that and what is actually physically possible for the person. Um, You know, it's easy to say, oh, well, you should just do this if you're on Facebook. But but looking at that overall situation with your veterinarian, you are going to get a lot more information that's useful rather than just gobs of information that you have to sort through and figure out on your own.
2: Because there's context there. So your veterinarian can help you make decisions, good decisions for your horse, not just on the specific question or issue at hand, but on the context in which you're working. And a lot of people will say, oh, ask your vet, ask your vet, because your vet has the experience, the credentials, the expertise. But there's that one step further. And you're the first person who's actually said this, um, or at least that I've heard, is that there's context. Your vet has been there, knows your farm, knows your horse, perhaps maybe knows the history, knows you, or even knows the area. You can post a question in a Facebook group and someone from Colorado can answer your question and you're in, you know, Southeast Florida, which right. that alone can, you know, make a difference in how you proceed. So I like the fact that you mentioned context and you like, and some people don't want to pay for the farm call. Like, so I'm like, oh, there's a big field of grass. I can just turn my horse out in it and it's fine. And my grand horse did that and he was fine. But we can't do that anymore. We know better. Absolutely. So I'm going to quickly go through some of the other five freedoms because we can, we can do a whole episode on this. Um, freedom from discomfort. Freedom from pain, injury or disease. Freedom to express normal behavior and then freedom from fear and distress freedom from discomfort that's a fairly easy one like you can tell when your horse is in pain for the most part there's subtleties but
3: right and i do think when you say there's subtleties i think there's some places where it can be hard so horses are you know they are mentally prey animals and so they do hide things pretty well and And so if you're new to horses, you might not be able to recognize that. Or if your horse lives at a boarding stable and you go see him for an hour a day, that's when he's going to look his best. Mm -hmm. And so it can be really tough for people to recognize low level pain or chronic pain and discomfort. Um, You know, the mare that's always really grouchy, maybe her saddle doesn't fit. Um, the, you you know, the gelding that pins his ears when you go in a stall, well, maybe the horse in the stall next door is biting them across the door. You you know what I mean? There's, there's things that if your horse is not living at home with you, um, or you haven't had an opportunity to go through all of the very subtle facial expressions that horses can make, like it's, it can be hard to recognize discomfort. Um, and again, that's where, you know, your veterinarian can help you with that. Um, sometimes that advice that comes to you, like there's nothing, there's nothing so unwanted as unsolicited advice, but sometimes that (sighs) advice does have merit because somebody else may see your horse when you're not seeing your horse and that horse could present something different. So, so I do think being able to recognize that that is the first step is to be able to recognize it so that we can help the horse with it.
2: A lot of people will automatically default to the word naughty or bad or fresh. Uh, Behavioral issues pop up, which are usually the front line, or it's the first thing you see when a horse is in discomfort or pain. And they say, oh, my horse is, is misbehaving. And a lot of times, if the horse owner can't get to the bottom of the behavioral issue, that horse ends up on a slaughter truck. right? Or they get, they get passed down the line. So is it a good practice to say, my horse is misbehaving or is not cooperating? Let me find out why and let me not stop until I find out why. And not everybody has the resources to do that. Like for me, if I go to get my mare and bring her in and she wants to hang out grazing with her buddy, I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong? Why doesn't she want me to slap a saddle on her and put her to work? You know, <laughs> is, she, is she somehow uncomfortable? Um, I have the resources to follow that path. Not everybody does. So there's a point where you have to say, whatever this horse's issues are, behavioral or physical, I need to get some outside help in here. What's the first thing a person should do when their horse is misbehaving?
3: I mean, again, I think having a knowledgeable person look at the horse with you. So, I mean, and many, there are many horse people out there that are knowledgeable, but they just get stuck. And so having another outside perspective can help. And whether we're talking about a trainer that can help you look at the horse and say, okay, this really is a behavioral issue. We've developed this habit because here, look at what you as a person might be doing there that, you know, triggers this horse or isn't working for this horse, right? Because they're all individual. Yeah. Or having your um, veterinarian come out and look for a source of pain or do a basic lameness exam. There's a There's a ton of horses out there that have low-grade subtle lamenesses, and they're still going around doing their job happy as a clam. But there are also horses that are more sensitive, and they may have a low-grade subtle lameness, and they manifest that by they're doing their best to tell you It's just that we have to figure out how to listen to them. They're saying, I cannot pick up the right lead. It hurts. You know, it hurts when I do that. And we interpret it as, you know, we are not doing the right thing as a person, which sometimes is the case. So sorting through that can be really, it can be tough because those things can be, there can be more than one factor at play. Um, So just, I think what you said, just keep looking, be persistent. I think that's, that's very important because hopefully, if you're persistent, you can eventually get the answer, or get to the bottom of what's going on.
2: Right. And having a second pair of eyes on your horse, someone who has a different perspective than you do, is important. Because we could be looking at our horse from one angle, whether that's a mental Angle or a, an actual physical literal angle. And then someone comes along with a different perspective and says, Yeah, I, I see something wrong here. I see a physical issue, not a behavioral one. But also, when you do ask somebody how they answer you is important in figuring out how much value you give to their input. If you have a trainer or a air quotes, knowledgeable friend who says, Oh, your horse is just misbehaving, get on there and kick them into this. That should be a red flag. Because there's an arrogance to it. But someone who says, you know, I think this is a a behavioral issue. Let's do or have you done a butte test (laughs) kind of thing? You know, that's always what I forget is, is let's go to the butte test and see if it's pain related. But I think someone who is helping you, the way they, they answer your question, to me is a good way for you to figure out whether or not their input is valuable. They need to have some compassion in their answer.
3: Sure. If you go to somebody and you ask them a question and they return your question by trying to get more information, like they start asking you more questions about background or what you've already done or how this has manifested, that's a good cue that they're really trying to understand and help. <clears throat> somebody that you go to and they answer the question and they're like, "Oh, blah blah blah." Um that's a pretty good cue. That either the problem is super basic, but more likely they don't necessarily understand all the subtleties surrounding it, and may come from a place of arrogance. I think that that is that's a that's a good way of of putting that, Helena, and sorting sorting through that.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I like the the fact that someone who asks questions is that's someone who's on your team. They want to work with you to figure this out yep. instead of just yep. push their agenda out. Um, we're going to move on because this is going to be a four-hour episode <laughs> if we don't. Um, hey, listeners, I encourage you to get the book and and you can read more about the five freedoms there. It's simple, but yet um, you'll be asking yourself a lot of really good questions, I think. So let's just say we are in a position where we can bring a horse home, a horse who is in transition, and... Taking horses from one career and are trying to give them another one, a new opportunity. A lot of times, when a horse is changing careers, it's because they either aged out of the first one, or I'm going to say they injured out, or like you said, they're they're malnourished, or something else is going wrong. What's the best way for us to set up our barn and the horse's environment so that the transition to our place? is as effective and comfortable for them as possible, regardless of what their previous work was, or maybe we do need to consider their previous work.
3: It's important to, I, I agree with you. It's important to consider their previous work um, because they're used to that routine of whatever that industry was, whether it's racehorse, show horse, you know, ranch horse, whatever it is. Um, but the first thing you're going to consider is the physical well-being of your current horses. So making sure your new horse is quarantined and healthy before you turn that horse, your new horse out with the rest of your group is pretty important. That also gives them a chance. Most people, you know, they don't have huge places. So there's probably going to be some visual and some voice contact. And so that lets the horses have a conversation. It would be like us having a phone conversation before we meet for coffee. Um, That's probably a good idea for, The mental well-being of all the horses. So make sure you protect the horses you have. And then the second thing is, is meeting the physical needs of your new horse. So just like going through the five freedoms, keeping them apart from the rest of the herd because you don't want them to spread contagious diseases, but you also want to give your new horse time to adjust. They're not at the track anymore. They're not at the ranch anymore. So they're going to have a different feeding routine. They need to adjust to your routine and your behavior expectations, and they want you want them to feel very comfortable. Then that sort of leads to the third thing: we want them to feel comfortable and ensure that their mental well being is attended to. If you do acquire a horse that a body that's a body condition score one or two or even three, they will not do well if you turn them out with your healthy horses. They can't defend themselves. They can barely hold themselves up they are not going to feel comfortable being able to lay down and rest, especially if you have more than just one other horse at home. The old horses are always going to sort of pick on the new horse. Mm. And if he's too, he or she is too thin to defend themselves or be able to, to move away quickly, you're going to end up with injuries. But at the same time, no horse wants to be alone. So you know, I would consider a companion alternative so goat or a miniature donkey or something else so that they've got a buddy. i I think they prefer at least other equines to goats, but you know goats do fine for many horses. or when you introduce to your new herd, you start with your most kind gelding that you know is healthy, you know what his deworming status is, you know he's fully vaccinated so that the risk of disease transmission is minimized, but you can also give your new horse a friend. And you want to pick the friend out of your group that is probably the most welcoming, you know what I mean? And so then there's lots of ways to do this. And again, I think consulting with somebody that knows the way your place is set up because there's so many different setups.
2: It's, uh yeah, just a, a nicely bedded fluffy stall isn't really the answer to everything. But I think quarantine is really, really important. And I see so many barn owners, especially in commercial facilities, that don't. But talking about food, um, food is love for a lot of people. And in many cases, we're bringing home malnourished horses. That seems to be one of the top problems we can't just throw food at them and say, okay, here you go, eat and get fat. Tell us what we need to think about in terms of feeding and refeeding the malnourished horse. Right.
3: So this is a super important concept. If horses are fed too much too soon, it can result in a metabolic problem called refeeding syndrome. And refeeding syndrome can be so severe that the horse will actually lay down and die. And I that is what happened to the horse that inspired this book that I talk about, um, the people that, that ultimately lost their house. Their horse was so thin. And when I showed up, they had a fresh bale of hay and a fresh bag of grain. And I'm sure they fed that to her. And despite the fact that I discussed with them the potential risks of that, um, you know, they had gone to do those things to prove that they were taking care of their horse. And, and two days later, she was down in the snow and, and, Didn't survive, so it's if you've never seen that, it's hard to wrap your head around that. Um, But I have seen it enough that it is it is such a tragedy, and it's so tough to work around. And even even in an ideal situation, like at a university teaching hospital where the horse can have everything it needs, there are times when they are so thin they cannot recover. Um, So what happens with refeeding syndrome is that their body has been using its own fat and muscle reserves for energy. And the switch to relying mostly on carbohydrates like horses are designed to do, it just has to be done slowly because the sugars in the hay will cause the body to release insulin and there can be this very vicious cycle. Electrolytes are out of whack, other body systems are out of whack. And so because the horse's system has been dysfunctional, so the thinner the horse is and the longer the dysfunction or the starvation has occurred, the higher the risk of refeeding syndrome. So the horse's body cannot regulate itself. The most research has been done at UC Davis, and that program emphasizes beginning with alfalfa because alfalfa is high in protein and alfalfa is generally readily available it might be expensive but that is what we can start with and you can get it in multiple formats so if the horse doesn't have good teeth you can get alfalfa pellets and feed those soaked Um, long stem roughage hay is best but we want to start with alfalfa hay and so our goal with the first week to two weeks is going to be just resetting the horse's system and basically getting it used to being fed again. So the idea is that you start with one pound or a half a pound of alfalfa six times a day. So frequent small meals of alfalfa. And we're not working on weight gain on day one. We're working on resetting that metabolic system so that it can function and then gain weight. So at some point, as you've gradually worked into this, you're going to get up to where you're feeding free choice alfalfa to these horses. And then you're going to really start noticing these horses are gaining weight. This horse is really looking a lot better. It's shedding that poor hair coat. It's got more energy. This horse has, um, you know, has muscle coming on. And I, I would recommend only starting grain, which is super high in sugar and starches only after a month.
2: Okay. So, so for 30 days of this transitional forage diet.
3: Yep. Yep. And then you can start mixing some grass. If you're going to use grass hay long-term, you want to mix that you know, with the alfalfa and start transitioning it over. But the using the alfalfa and following the UC Davis guidelines, that is where the research has been. And that is what I recommend because there is science behind it. And because I have seen horses, the temptation is Oh, let's start with free choice grass. hay, and you can get away with that on horses that are, you know, they're lean so their body conditions three and four, mm. um, and they have had access, but they just hasn't, they haven't had enough calories, but the horses that are truly starved, I've seen several, they start with free choice grass. hay, and those horses lay down and die. Ugh. And so I, I just, it's heartbreaking. We can do better, so we should do better.
2: The other thing that I've seen or I've heard of, um, thankfully, I haven't seen it firsthand, is that the, uh, something similar can happen when we've got a horse with worms. And people want to deworm them right away and deworm them like nobody's business. That can also create potentially fatal issues, right? Um, that's
3: more unusual. Um, there's the, there's a little bit of mythology with that um, and science veterinarians and science have tried to do like these half dose dewormers and things like that, but the current deworming protocols include doing fecal exams. So while I agree that let's get this horse's system body systems reset first and then deworm a little bit later, I do think that that's important. Um, But let's also base our deworming off of a fecal. Let's know what our fecal egg counts are. Let's know what parasites are there. Um, let's make sure we do this in an educated way. Most of the deworming problems occur. So the biggest parasites are ascarids, which are roundworms, um, and those are a much bigger problem with young horses. So you know weanlings and yearlings. And you can, if you kill all of those worms too soon, because they're large. Size, those can kind of clog things up, but that's pretty unusual in the U.S. and the historic worm burdens that horses had and parasites that existed, that's changed over the years as we've done a better job with parasite management and deworming. So now mostly in today's horses, they're exposed to strongiles, which are physically a smaller worm. They can, the strongiles can embed in the wall of the gut. And so if the horse is not healthy and you deworm them and those parasites come out of the wall of the gut as they're dying off, that can certainly cause some inflammation. Um, but again, let's get the horse healthy and eating and then let's do our deworming protocols based on fecals. Let's do it in an educated, educated way. We want to get enough information that we can do, do the right thing for the horse. So the fecals are really important for that. And that brings up another small tangent, which is don't bring this horse home and turn it out on your green pasture. Put it somewhere in your dry lot. So if it has a high worm burden, it's not contaminating your pastures. Get its body system reset, do the fecal, get its parasite burden lower, decreased before you turn it out and contaminate your pastures with these super wormy horses. They're just, I mean, they're spreading worm eggs. Yeah. To everybody else in your herd. And that that fecal getting that fecal is really important for knowing that.
2: Okay, before we move on, we're gonna take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, AirLight USA, and then we're gonna be back with a couple more questions for Dr. Boswell. If you're over the smell of urine-soaked pine shavings in your stalls, join the club. If you're sick of spending money on treatments for your horse's nagging cough, Join the club. If you could do without the endless raking of shavings from your stable yard, join the club and make the change to cardboard. Shredded cardboard bedding from Airlight USA is the answer to some of the top health challenges in barns. Whether you have two stalls or 20, the health of your animals starts from the ground up. To learn more, visit airlightusa.com. one of the things that's been difficult for me is timing and knowing what to expect. So I'm working with my veterinarian. I have a very malnourished horse who's sweet. I, I tell everybody I bought a brain. (laughs) I, I, the Mm -hmm. body came with it. It wasn't the body wasn't in the best of shape, but um, I brought a heart and a soul home. And because this was the first time I've ever owned an off track thoroughbred, a a young horse, Mm -hmm. a mare, There were a lot of things I didn't know, despite having had and worked with horses for a very, very long time. Not knowing what to expect and how long certain things would take, and being a naturally impatient person, I found myself wringing my hands a lot. You know, how long is this going to take? You start feeding them. You see these pictures online and like, oh, this was my horse before, and this was my horse four weeks later. And you see fat, glowing, shiny horse. I don't think that's realistic uh, based on what I experienced personally. Like you said, about a month of starting this refeeding program, depending obviously on what was wrong with your horse when you got him or her. Let's just say, for example, it's a run-of-the-mill malnourishment and you're refeeding this horse. A lot needs to happen before you put the saddle on for the first time and see what kind of riding horse you might have. What kind of timeframes are realistic?
3: You know, I think that if we, let's set our expectations for long-term goals with these horses, right? And there's a lot that you can do with a thin horse training-wise before you get to riding. So if you think about starting, let's say we're just starting a young horse that's normal and healthy, you're not going to start a two-year-old and think that it's going to go win a show for you tomorrow. You're going to expect that that takes a couple of years to get to that place. And so that's the kind of expectation that we should have for these these horses in these neglect situations as well. So from just a malnourishment standpoint, it's gonna take six to twelve months, depending on the severity. And and things that can slow you down along the way are the other ailments that may have led to that. So your horse was four years old and otherwise didn't have known medical issues, but the horse that you acquire might be 15 years old and he may have a high worm burden. He may have hoof issues or lameness that means that's why he can't get to the feeder. Or there may be a tooth problem. Even in a young horse, you may have a broken tooth in there. I, one of the horses that I talk about in the book, the horse was seen by three other veterinarians before I saw him and he had a tooth that was broken and that tooth was broken in such a way that food was packing up through the tooth and into the horse's sinus. And so that if you've ever had a sinus infection, you know that doesn't feel good. And so he stayed on the thinner side and he had discharge from his left nostril for almost 4 years. Oh my god. Until we identified the abnormal tooth, removed that tooth and we were able to pack the socket And get it to heal up. And since then, the horse has done great. And so that's one thing to consider is, if we don't think we're making progress, and that's why we have a veterinary exam done early, let's identify those things so that we can set ourselves up for success and set our horses up for success. The other thing that happens is, yeah, you go out and you look on the internet and there's the before and after pictures and okay, that's great. Or you can look at your horse, but you're looking at your horse every day. So gradual, subtle changes can be really hard to appreciate. So I advocate using a weight tape because the weight tape will pick up weight changes before your eye does and it will help prevent you from getting discouraged because you'll see if you're taking that weight tape every week and you're writing it down, you're going to see that trend before your eye notices that, oh yeah, we're now a body condition score three, you know, three on a scale of one to nine. Instead of a two. Okay, now we're a four instead of a three. And the horse not only has to gain the weight, but we have to build muscle. Mm. And so if you think about how much work, even in normal horses, if you pick up any horse training book, it's going to talk about building top line and building muscle. And you can go buy, you know, you can go to the store and buy products that are called Top Line Builder. Most of those are just high fat products and they're just putting weight on horses. You can't specifically build in one area, just with food. You have to also be, let's take this horse on an exercise program that suits his current needs. So he's a body condition score one on a scale of one to nine. Let's start by making friends with him and making sure he is halter trained. You know, can we put a halter on him? Can he walk two steps across the pin? That might be all we can do. He might not have enough muscle to balance himself if you pick up a foot. Okay, now we're body condition score three. We can start halter training. Make sure we're halter trained and let's increase that. Do we load in the trailer? Can we step over a Cavaletti? If we're going to step over a Cavaletti or a log or whatever, we have to engage our back muscles. We have to engage our core muscles. You don't want to exercise, you know, trying to get this horse to a show tomorrow, right? You're trying to get him to build some muscle and some coordination.
2: And that can be done from the ground. Right. There's no such thing as too much groundwork, and I learned that because when I first brought my mare home, I had, in addition to the vet, I had a chiropractor come out and assess her her body and her back, and we came up with a plan together, and it became very clear that a saddle on her back and a rider was not going to be in her best interest. We spent a lot of time doing all sorts of different exercises on the ground, and her brain appreciated that because she didn't have the anxiety or the stress of having to carry you know of of having to tax her physical body and so she became very attached to me because this kind of work was good for her mind and for her spirit and um it actually was hugely effective in building up her muscle her her hind end and you know i'm i was one of those people who thought oh if i buy this product this top line balancer that it'll help and Let's add this vitamin and this supplement and this food. And you kind of can go a little crazy throwing all this stuff at your horse, trying to get her to the place you think she needs to be. But you can't overdo groundwork, I would say.
3: Well, I think there are some really, I don't necessarily agree with you 100% on that. I think when we're talking about flow, groundwork, exercises, and bonding, I really like that you talked about bonding because before you get on a horse, should definitely have some communication and bond. And that groundwork is a place where we can clarify our signals. I think it's a little easier for me just because of the nature of what I do. I'm definitely better at talking to horses from the ground than I am from on top of them. And I think that because of their visual, they can see you better and understand you better. So it's all about setting those expectations and developing that bond. But I do think that there are some places, okay, you have a yearling horse spending an hour groundwork,
2: cantering him around and around him, oh. that is probably too much. Do you see what I mean? Right, right, right. We want to keep the, the sessions short and appropriate. Right, right. Okay, so, so yeah, but, we so don't, do but let's we talk a to little be... bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about um, more about that. Um, the amount of time that we spend reconditioning our horses, we we don't want to overdo it even on the ground.
3: Right, I, I just think... So like in my book, I talk about halter training an adult horse. And if you if you go look online, mostly what you're going to find is a lot of round pinning of healthy adult horses. The round pinning can get pretty aggressive. And I'm not saying it's the wrong thing for those healthy horses, but if your horse has an underlying respiratory problem or your horse has a lameness problem or your horse doesn't have enough muscle to do that aggressive type of exercise, it's going to be really hard to make progress using that technique. So we want to look for some other techniques for these horses that have been neglected so that we can, you know, still set them up for success. Five minutes a day might be all that horse can manage mentally and physically. And as you go along and things progress, you may be spending more time with them. And I absolutely agree with you. Five minutes of just checking in with your horse if you do have a round pin and that's what you're going to use, watch your horse at the trot before you get on him, because that's when he's going to show you, oh, my left front foot hurts today. And you're going to say, maybe I shouldn't ride you today. Let's evaluate that further. You know, you're assessing your horse. Is this horse healthy today, every single time before you get on? Mm. So that, that's where that groundwork comes in. And it's also about like setting your expectations. Is your horse respectful of you? Is your horse appreciative of you? You're providing for your horse's needs in entirety. And in exchange, we expect that our horses are going to give us, and I, I love that you say your horse, you bought a heart and a soul. Are they going to give those things to us and, and be bonded with us and be our partner? You know, that's what we're looking for. Um, but as a, as, as a partner of the horse, we also have to have respect for the horse and make sure that we're looking after those things. And and doing that groundwork as a basis Um, that is important. And you, you can, you can do a lot of really fun things with your horse on the ground to prep them for riding, make sure that you've broken things up into small details and to prep them physically for riding.
2: There was something else that you wanted to talk about and it has to do with mares. Yes. I appreciate you coming back to that. Um, so
3: when we acquire these horses that are in transition, we don't know Where they've been, or we don't always know where they've been and what's gone on with them, and so the really common issue of a surprise baby occurs with such frequency that I think we would be really remiss to leave that out. You wouldn't go, you you know, you wouldn't go to an auction and pick up a colt and then bring him home and not have him gelded. You know what I mean? We are going to attend to the reproductive needs of those intact stallions because it's something that's obvious and external to us. right? But we also should not neglect the mare's reproductive needs. It could be really hard to get her to gain weight if she's in late pregnancy and you don't realize it. Or you could acquire her in the autumn and you think you're doing a great job with weight gain. And in the spring, she looks really fat and sassy and that might not all be fat. So I feel very strongly that If you bring a horse home and you don't absolutely know 100% of her full history, she should have a reproductive ultrasound. And if she's a mini or behaviorally we can't get a reproductive ultrasound done right away, we want to do it as soon as we can. There are some blood tests that are also available to help us determine that pregnancy status. But again, we want to meet our horse's physical needs. And so knowing her pregnancy status is really important. And I, I have had at least one client that I know of whose horse got pregnant at the auction in the pen. So it's not just check her on day one. We want to make sure we check her two or three weeks later because you can't you can only detect a pregnancy after 14 days. So if it's if it's possible, we really want to check and know so that we can make sure she gets the extra vaccines, the extra calories, we can prep ourselves for the full if we really, really don't want the foal and it's early enough, sometimes we can do some hormonal manipulations so that then she doesn't have to carry that. And you can, you know, we can talk more about that in detail, but there's lots of options out there. But if we don't know that she's in foal, we are not setting, our success, not setting her up or not setting ourselves up for success. It's critical that we have that checked. And I think it's just, it's hard to look at that body condition score to mare and think, ah, oh, well, she could be pregnant the domestic animals drive for reproduction and the body's ability to carry an early pregnancy and even carry into late pregnancy, despite not having enough nutrition. And again, we've talked about Facebook several times, but I see it on Facebook all the time. I'm of course kind of a person that's in like the donkey and mule question group and the (laughs) horse veterinary question group and friendly questions for horse people and, and things like that. And I see it on those groups All the time, we brought home this rescue, and look what she gave us today. And I'm like, oh man, because it's nice when you see that sort of before and after on the internet, and it's kind of fun. But then in the meantime, like I see the complete disasters, and I would really like to avoid those disasters because sometimes they are avoidable.
2: So what should you do if you're if you're bringing home a mare and she just looks skinny and unwell to you? What's the first thing you do to figure out whether or not she might be in full?
3: as soon as her training and her body is physically strong enough to withstand having an ultrasound done, I would do that. Okay. Like it could be the day you bring her home. And then if you, if you've brought her home from the auction or what's unclear or there's any possibility, I would honestly have a second ultrasound done two or three weeks later to make sure you're past that 14 days. Okay. But I would have her checked ASAP. And even if you find that she's mid to late gestation, you can at least start prepping with at least a few vaccines and we can kind of estimate how far along it is and we can get a physical area prepped. Maybe your barn's not set up to fall out a mare. Let's make sure we have a place. Let's make sure that she's separated from the others if that's how you're going to manage her to have
2: her baby in some privacy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess timing Patients, working with your vet. If you could leave our listeners with one powerful piece of advice that can help us as individual horse owners, what can we do to help reduce the number of horses that end up in such need? What would you tell us?
3: I'm going to make this two things. I'm sorry, I
2: can't just pare it down to
3: one. But number one, know your horses, watch your horses, recognize, learn everything you can to recognize when your horses or your neighbor's horses are having trouble. And then the second thing, like we started talking about is making sure that we come from a place of kindness and empathy to the people that are involved, because that's our best chance for helping the horses that are involved. So recognition and kindness.
2: Hmm. Okay. Well, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Boswell. I cannot recommend this book enough. Even if you think you know what you're doing with horses, we've learned a lot in the last 5, 10, 20 years. Technology has given us so much more insight to things that we thought we knew, but we actually didn't. So pick up the book. You can get it at horseandriderbooks.com. It is worth it to have, not just as an initial read, but as reference. Whether you have one horse or 100, I highly recommend it. Dr. Boswell, I hope that you'll come back. I would love to dig into some of the chapters of your book in more detail because, I mean, I know it took you years to write this book, but I do think that getting the word out and having these frank conversations is really important. And as the Stalin Stable listener base grows, I think your message is critical to really making a change in our horses' lives. So I hope you'll come back again. Thank
3: you so much for having me today, Helena. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'd love to chat further.
2: I hope, listeners, that you are as inspired as I am by this conversation with Dr. Boswell. And I also hope that you grab a copy of her book. You can purchase it online at horseandriderbooks.com. And if you are a member of the Stalin Stable Friends Group, you get a 20% discount. You can also get a copy of Dr. Boswell's book at the United Horse Coalition's website. We'll provide a link directly to the book on their website at stallandstable.com in this episode's show notes. Again, the book is titled The Ultimate Guide for Horses in Need. It was published by Trafalgar Square Books at Horse and Rider Books. This book covers the care, training, and rehabilitation for rescues, adoptions, and horses in transition. Thank you so much for following along, listeners. And since this is an incredibly important topic, I hope that you'll share this episode far and wide. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.
4: are listening to episode 41 of the Take the Reins podcast with Nikki Porter. Welcome and thanks for stopping by. You're listening to Take the Reins, a weekly personal growth podcast for horse owners. If you're invested in becoming the best version of yourself in all your relationships, both human and equine, this is the spot for you. Through our conversations, you will learn how to become a stronger communicator, leader, and deepen the connection you crave both in and out of the arena. Horses have an awful lot to teach us, yet very little of it actually has to do with horses. They reflect back to you who you are emotionally, physically, and energetically. They are a mirror to your soul, and it is time to take an honest look at who you are and who you want to become. I can't wait to connect with you, so here we go.
5: learned with the animals around awareness, around around self-awareness, but also expanding this idea of awareness are Mm -hmm. these four channels of awareness. And they are in them unless they're not. If they're they're in those awareness channels while they're if we think just about horses, while they're grazing and foraging and moving. Mm -hmm. And when they're stopped and resting, it's not everyone that's stopped and resting. They're sharing awareness because it's impossible to be in awareness all the time. And it's absolutely okay for us to decide we need a break from awareness. But when we're showing up and doing things with others, we're committing to awareness. Mm -hmm. And I think this is confusing to our horses because a lot of times we're not. (laughs) We're showing up, but we're not in awareness. We're focused on them.
4: Hello, and welcome to the Take the Reins podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Porter, and I have a little story to tell you that I'm hoping will restore your faith in... The universe and its ability to support you in what you want in life because I just find this absolutely fascinating. I was going through all of my photos on my phone because of course I was running out of space per usual and I came across a screenshot that I had taken almost a year ago. It was actually December the 5th, 2019. It was six twenty-one in the morning and I took a screen screenshot of a woman's instagram page that must have just stood out to me that i thought maybe i should reach out to now a lot of the times when i do things first thing in the morning and i'm not actually up i'm just kind of laying in bed it happens and then i forget about it because i either fall back asleep or i start on with my day and i just kind of you know release it from my to-do list. I screenshotted this lady's profile and then it wasn't until I think it was Probably two months ago now that I finally reached out to this person, and it was based on a whole other experience where they had come up. So very interesting. I had you know come across them and thought they were someone I should connect with, and then you know completely forgot about her or or my intentions to connect with her. And then through other sources, she was brought to me again, and I did finally reach out. And that is how. How this interview came about and I'm even more excited to share with you that this is just the start of my work with this lovely individual that I have the privilege of interviewing on today's podcast. And I can't wait to share with you what we have in store for you together. And as it takes more of a, of a form, then I will definitely be sharing more details with you. So stay tuned for some really exciting things happening here with both myself and my interviewee, Beth Killo. Now, if you have not heard of Beth, I am so thrilled to be the one to bring her name to your ears for the first time because she is someone that you're going to want to follow her work is phenomenal. She is the head cowgirl and owner of the Circle Up Experience. She's a lifelong cowgirl writer, professor, and licensed psychotherapist. Beth has 20 years of experience working with people to awaken their innate leadership gifts so they can live and work with more authentic relationship and connection. Beth is a seeker and a truth teller who brings heart and humor into her work. She is gifted at finding the one question that needs to be asked and using her cowgirl courage, courage to ask it. Beth owns Take a Chance Ranch in Morgan Hill, California, where Circle Up hosts workshops. The ranch also hosts women's events, recovery groups, weekly meditations, horsemanship events, and art programs. Beth and her family live on the ranch with their ever-growing family of animals who support her work, and I encourage you to find Beth on social media. She is on Instagram at the Circle Up Experience, and there you can actually follow Beth because she just brought home her Mustang and the lessons that she will be learning from this animal are phenomenal. I'm absolutely honored to be speaking with Beth in this interview and it is one of my favorite conversations that I've had so far and I feel like I say that every time, but it they all these conversations are both amazing and important to me And this one is absolutely one for the books. And my favorite part is that Beth and I dive deep into the piece of awareness, which has been a topic of interest of mine for quite some time, but definitely a topic I've been diving deeper into here on the Take the Reins podcast. So I hope that this interview resonates well with you. And if it does, make sure you reach out to me and let me know what you think of it. And really, the way that you can help support the Take the Reins podcast is just anytime you hear something that resonates with you, that you feel like you've gained at least one thing from from, I'd really appreciate you just sharing it with a friend, even just through conversation. This doesn't even have to happen over social media. But when you share about the Take the Reins podcast with your friends and family, you help it sustain life. So I greatly appreciate it. And I sincerely hope that this interview helps you as a horse owner and a person to to grow and become more aware, here's my interview with the one and only Beth Killo. Hello, Beth Killo. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I cannot thank you enough for joining me. So, Beth, I would love for you to just share with me and my listeners. A little bit about yourself, as well as the Circle Up experience that we have spoken about, uh, the business that you're the founder and owner of. And again, thank you so much for being here today.
5: Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure and honor uh, for me as well. So, where do I begin? I am a human animal. Um, I'm in California. And I'm a lifelong animal person. Horses and dogs have been my teachers since I can remember. I'm also um, a mom. And um, I'm thinking of the things of my identity that start mm-hmm. to weave together, like the fabric of who I am and what I have to offer. So mm-hmm. these different perspectives are all pieces of, you know, parts of me. I'm a poet. And my first career was actually in teaching poetry at university.
1: Oh. And
5: um, from there, I I realized I was doing a lot of informal therapy with my students who were pouring their hearts out on paper. Oh. And so I went and got a clinical psychology degree and became a therapist. And I practiced real traditionally, you know, in an office for over a decade and, um, and all the while, you know, I've had this parallel path with my animals and I've sought out teachers, experiences, trainers who, who, who help with the, um, like the tactical things we do with our animals, right? Mm-hmm. That, and for me, I've been um, working with border collies and sheep herding since I was 20. And so that was a main focus for me. Um, And then all the different equestrian sports that I could get my hands on. Um, But I've always found, looked for teachers who who were willing to explore the human element Mm. and what we bring as Mm. partners in those relationships. And so I've had the privilege of working with amazing teachers. and, And when I have found those who will really dive in with me those have been the teachers i've held on to
1: mm-hmm.
5: and so and and as i continued doing that process and then doing my professional work they slowly they converged and i realized that i didn't want to work helping people helping the human animals without the other animals to assist and so i started doing that work here at my ranch about 7 years ago and I did start seeking out different equine assisted learning trainings. And I've been, you know, going to those and learning about that those models um, for a long time. But I, I have found there have been some missing elements. And mm-hmm. so I started adding different pieces of my own along the way. But that's Interesting. Been my journey. And now I really prefer to work in an inner species classroom, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. And and to do that experiential learning. Sometimes it's psychotherapy. So I still do that work. I'm a trained mm-hmm. trauma therapist and but I do a lot of work with groups and trying to help people understand how to stabilize their own leadership so that they can be better partners in their work lives or in their home lives and that they can also build healthier herds mm-hmm. with each other. And so I work with a lot of corporations and do big like culture building experiments, mm-hmm. I would like to say they are, um, <laughs> where they really get to create the culture of their own herd. You know, we know as horse people, every herd has its own tone mm-hmm. and feel. They're not all the mm-hmm. same, and um, yeah. depending on the values. And of those herds. are some basic elements though that, mm-hmm. that make sense to, to um, groups of mammals. So that's, that's the premise of my work now. And I've really gotten more and more committed to all of the work, starting with the animals first and foremost, so that we can tap into this element of what I call our natural leadership as humans, where we have so much more information about how to take care of ourselves and mm-hmm. how to interact.
4: Absolutely. That sounds amazing. Thank <laughs> I love you. everything about
5: it <laughs> So
4: there's a couple things that come up that I would love for you just to go into a little more depth and the first thing that comes up for me is I guess there will be two things that I would love for you to kind of dive into. First the human element I think that is beautiful because so often when people work with their horses, we are a part of the relationship but oftentimes, what happens with the horses becomes a horse issue. It, the, we only think of the horse element. And so I kind of use the idea of sending a horse off to training where, oh, this is what's happening with my horse. I'm going to find this trainer that I really enjoy. And I'm not knocking sending your horse to a trainer because we had horses sent to us. But, you know, we have that idea that the horse will go away and then it'll come home and the relationship will have changed and the dynamics will have changed. And then, but the the piece that was missing was the human element To the relationship, so while that horse was off for training, what was the human doing in order to really (laughs) facilitate that change? And we need to be concentrating on our training just as much as sending those horses off. So. I don't know if that's where you go with the human element, um, but that's exactly what came into my mind as you even just Mm. spoke the words. I was like, oh gosh, it's so good. (laughs) So the human element, if you want to speak more about that, and then the other part is the human animal. And Mm. that is not a phrase that we hear often. So I know that it'll kind of perk the ears of some people and some listeners and go like, what is she talking about the human element or animal? Why is she referring to herself as an animal? Or why would she be referring to business corporations and groupings of people as a herd. How does that work? So that gives you probably 45 minutes to speak. <laughs> <laughs>
5: right. <laughs> I'm gonna try not to go too long because I love i in getting to know you, it's been so lovely to just to generate the conversation mm. together. So I'll try mm. not to go off no too problem far too far off the cliff. But yeah, you I love that you picked up on those two pieces because mm. those are I think they probably are unique to my work and they Mm -hmm. definitely catch attention. And so if you think about what you brought up around our focus on the horse and you just think about your own life as a human, when things are, when something's happening where there's tension or pressure or something's not going well, we're very quick as humans to look to others Mm -hmm. for the source of the problem, (laughs) not just our, our horses, but just in general the whole idea of self-reflection and ownership of our part
1: mm-hmm.
5: of what's happening mm-hmm. is um, w- we have a like a, a quick instinct to guard ourselves and look for what's happening outside of me that I need yeah. to change.
4: Now, I'm going to interrupt for a second yeah. because do you feel like, and this is just something that popped up for me is this almost goes one extreme or the other with this. You're either like all blame and, and, oh, wow, this is what's happening. Or you throw yourself completely under the bus and you're like, oh, it's all my fault. And, you know, I never listen. And, and it becomes a story (laughs) around shame and, and blaming yourself the same
5: way that does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think there's a gender piece here. And I think that females are more likely to take on that first, that Mm -hmm. self-blame piece. Mm -hmm. And over, and I think just to step back for a minute, the, the human element piece and the human animal piece, just to untangle that for a moment, we first and foremost are mammals, just like our horses, mm-hmm. and, um, and we're, we are herd animals. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at where we are on the food chain, regardless of what we decide to eat now, and as a modern day human, we're omnivorous mammals, And so we have to start thinking about ourselves and orienting ourselves around what that means and how our instincts and our hardwiring, which are ancient and still fully intact, are informing what's happening inside of us at any given moment and how we're interacting, even if we think we're interacting differently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The human brain, because of how it's evolved, has a glitch. We have this mind which is different than the brain. The brain is the organ. The mind is the phenomenon of the organ. And Dan Siegel, who's an amazing neuroscientist that I got to study with along the way, he talks about this a lot in his work and he's, he's, I mean, I'm going to just butcher it right now, but I'm going to try and then hopefully point people to the right direction to dig deep. He is, his work is dense and really rich, but what he talks about around the mind is that it interferes and interrupts the functions of the brain. So we can, they, this human element and this human animal, our brain is doing and our body is doing what it does on an instinct level all the time. But our mind can create thoughts that interrupt what our body and our brain are trying to tell us. Mm. The reason we love being with our horses is because, I believe, Mm -hmm. they actually ask us to integrate those. We don't have to give up one or the other, and it actually helps us feel more alive. Mm
1: -hmm.
5: And the reason I start all my work with people, whether they're horse people or not, is to wake that animal up so we can use its information. Mm -hmm. And so the human element is not just our thoughts. It's our entire human mammal. Experience and it exists in the body and in instincts in our nervous system, our thoughts, our emotions, our stories, and what we're doing with our body. Mm-hmm. And it is like our instrument. And our job in being more self aware is just tuning that instrument so that we're picking up those signals as accurately as possible. And if you watch your horses and you look at their ability to move away from pressure and then stop moving away from pressure they are so precise about where that pressure begins and ends
1: mm-hmm.
5: because they're trying to conserve energy and so and protect themselves and stay together like they have these core survival mechanisms we have those
1: mm-hmm.
5: but our mind our thinking brain that judges and blames and it interferes and that's the glitch and we're used to believing it Mm-hmm. what that does is just, it throws us off the rails. It's not that the mind doesn't do amazing things. I'm, and this is the funniest thing about my work because I'm a poet and I have, like I, I could probably be in graduate school the rest of my life, just learning or in mm-hmm. programs or mm-hmm. like I devour information and learning. And I always have like a really good brownie, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like cookies, like just give me more. But that part of me was actually, it was robbing me mm-hmm. of a more alive experience. And it was absolutely a place that I went to run away from a part of myself that didn't know how to cope with the world. Mm-hmm. So there are, the, I think I've I've covered the human animal piece and this human element piece is about really learning more about ourselves as the human animal so that we can actually use that and be grounded in it and use the information that our animal is giving us, mm-hmm. our human animal is giving us, so that we can show up in all our relationships, human, animal relationships, other animal relationships, as a stable partner.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: As a stable sometimes a leader, sometimes we're leading, sometimes we're not.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: But we've got to, if we don't have access to that, it's like driving without headlights. That's, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how I felt really, in life, was mm-hmm. a lot of the human practices and lifestyles, things we do, it dims yeah. that mammal. Yeah. And it, I think it's because if we don't know how to take care of that sensitivity, it is so overwhelming. So yeah. we, we learn all these things to make it go dim. Because when we wake it up, it's like, oh my god, I'm feeling everything. Yeah. So there's a reason why we dim it.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: But without it, it's like we are miss. We're we're driving without headlights.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Okay, so
4: there's a lot to that.
5: <laughs> there really is. <laughs> so I mean, good. Yeah. And, and I talk about just cause you woke up to that statement of the human animal yeah. and the reason like I use it, um, that, that language to wake us up out of a bit mm-hmm. of a, a slumber, yeah. <laughs> like you're a mammal. Let's just start there. Mm-hmm. Let's just start with being mammals and right. stop suppressing that and yeah. use it.
4: Yeah. And it, there's, you know, whether it becomes a societal thing that we've really separated ourselves from any other mammal on earth right so we are the superior race and we do the things and we have a thinking brain and and you know when we react or respond based on instinct that's a sign of weakness versus a sign of control or power or whatever that might be so yeah. As you're speaking, I kept having you know societal societal norms popping up in my head, and the fact that in years past we wouldn't have we would have to rely on those instincts to survive. And right. gradually, we with the you know the development of society and and technology and you know uh, gender norms and all of those things, it's amazing what we have done to each other by just expressing what we think is right or wrong, what we should hide, what we should what we consider weak versus strong. You know, um, it's amazing, especially when you look within the gender roles, which I, you know, it's amazing right now in our world, those are really being questioned and and reassessed, which I think is amazing. Yeah.
5: Having a daughter, I mean, it's amazing. Right? We, discovered <laughs> right. we have daughters around the same age and yeah. um And I mentioned being a mom and being a mom of a daughter and, you know, all mammal groups are matriarchal. Mm -hmm. Just think about that for a moment. (laughs) So um, the culture of the mammal group. Is matriarchal. It doesn't mean that that males and females don't have necessary necessary relevant roles to play, but the culture of the creating the relationships and how those relationships operate are matriarchal. So I call my little herd Mm Meridice because it's like this amazing classroom for me in healthy culture and Mm -hmm. interdependence. And I just went to a bridal horse workshop like three weeks ago with um. Bruce Sandifer, and Jeff Derby, who and they're amazing teachers, and I can't wait to ride with them again. And we had some really incredible conversation about the difference between dominant-based training or horsemanship styles, and then the styles of, of training that are more based on indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why the Vaquero tradition is so interesting is that it really if you, you know, when we're talking about, we're really diving in here, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Nikki? <laughs> but when we're talking about like, how did we get to this idea of like instincts are less than, mm-hmm. and I've really been looking at like, where in history did that happen? And I think it's around like colonization yeah. where we started yeah. because indigenous cultures that are much more closely related to land and to the animals knew how to partner with them mm-hmm. versus dominate them. Yeah, And so we had a lot of conversation about that at the workshop. We also did a ton of riding and gathering cows, and it was amazing. Right. But to add this element of being able to look at, you know, am I coming to this relationship or whatever I'm doing with my horse or myself or each other from a, a joining? How can we work together? How can we support each other versus I am going to dominate parts that I don't understand mm-hmm. or that scare me or that, um, that challenge me mm-hmm. to have to grow. Like that's yeah. and that's essentially um I think what happened with a lot of if you look around the world with colonialism.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: So and a lot of our training practices are based on colonial cultures versus mm-hmm. indigenous ones.
1: Yeah,
4: absolutely. Okay. So I'm gonna bring it back for a second. Good um, idea. <laughs> I love Perfect. the conversation but i want to bring it back for a second to when we're thinking about that human element and thinking about our instincts when i think of people working with their horses and we're and we're speaking about the mind versus the brain Oftentimes you'll hear people and this is, this is, you know, what we're taught is the natural learning curve, right? So you you're in your, when you're really having to think about it. And then, you know, when you develop feel with an animal is when you're no longer thinking it, you're feeling it and doing it. But I feel like in our work with our horses, we can actually begin to trust ourselves sooner and rely don't, I don't want to discredit education because I believe in getting regular lessons and going to clinics and learning all that you can from everyone. But I believe at some point we should be taught sooner Mm -hmm. when to trust our natural understanding of what to do in specific situations with our Mm -hmm. horse. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying mechanically, what do I need to do here? I like to try to say to someone what does it feel like you need to do? So rather than being in your head and in your mind and feeling like you need to think your way through this situation, if you tap into what instinctually feels right, what you know, what are you being told?
5: Oh, I love that so much. I think so the, the in what I've learned with the animals around awareness, around around self-awareness, but also, Expanding this idea of awareness are Mm -hmm. these four channels of awareness. And they are in them unless they're not. If Mm -hmm. they're they're in those awareness channels while they're, if we think just about horses, while they're grazing and foraging and moving. Mm -hmm. And when they're stopped and resting, it's not everyone that's stopped and resting. They're sharing awareness because it's impossible to be in awareness all the time. And it's absolutely okay for us to decide we need a break from awareness. But when we're showing up and doing things with others, we're committing to awareness. Mm -hmm. And I think this is confusing to our horses because a lot of times we're not. (laughs) We're showing up, but we're not in awareness. We're focused on them, Mm -hmm. which is one of the channels of awareness, but it's not the whole picture so what they're expecting of us because of what they do with each other and actually what we are programmed to be able to do and this is the piece that we really can work on all the time mm-hmm. and get to a point of unconscious competency which i think is what you're referring <laughs> That's to That's exactly. You don't have to think about it and you just do it and it's part yeah. naturally part of you. Yes. This is absolutely something we can achieve more easily than you think with mm-hmm. practice. These four channels are, they're all based around a question that one of my beloved teachers taught me, which is what's happening right now. That's the main question. The four channels are what's happening inside of me, what's happening with you. So that's like, first is our self-reflection, not just our mind. The second one is our empathy system. The third one is what's happening between us which is our relational space. And then the fourth one is what's going, what is our context? What's going on around us? And that can be in our environmental surroundings, but it can also be time of day, season, predator, you know, it's all the factors that are right outside that are influencing our little zone of relating. Mm -hmm. Our animals are expecting us when we show up and we're all lit up and aware. They're expecting us to be able to hold awareness of all four of those, mm-hmm. but instead we're focused on number two, which is what you pointed at, which is what are you doing? And, and there's an element of it. And this is a human component. And what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the ego. Mm-hmm. What are you doing right now, horse? And what does that mean about me as a horse person?
1: Mm-hmm.
5: And they're very confused about our main focus being just that. So this first component of being able to look at ourselves as a mammal and think about what's going on in my body, what am I doing with my body, what, is my, what are my arms doing right now, what's happening in my mind, what kind of thoughts are going on, what's going on in my heart, do I have some heartache or anger or what's like in my emotional system, am I hungry? You know, Mm -hmm. like, have I forgotten to breathe and move? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, am I frozen? Am I in kind of a freeze state? And we want to expand that and start to go beyond just the mind Mm -hmm. and start to think about the body and what our instincts are doing right now. Am I in a little bit of survival mode, even though I don't need to be? Because we're often holding more tension Mm -hmm. in our bodies. So we're like, oh, my horse is bracy. Hey, have you been breathing? Mm -hmm. Are you bracy? And what are you bracing against? And so we skip over that one. And it's not that we can just dive into awareness channel one, the expectation of our animals, if we're showing up is that we're actually going to be able to do all four. Yeah. And so we've got to practice doing that. And by the way, the expectation of each other and this is what our children want from us and we don't know it but it's what we want in our friendships and our business mm-hmm. relationships is exactly the same thing it's no different for humans absolutely
4: when you're speaking about awareness in the four channels it just brings up embodied leadership for me so it's really yes. becoming a leader for your horse from in an embodied state yes. um and it it is it's so important to ask those questions and to feel into it versus Are you handling your horse in a habitual way versus a responsive way? Um, You know, the uh, oftentimes I'll see the habit of people that are just new to horses. They will hold their horses anywhere they're leading them. They're holding their horse really tight because they're so focused on controlling that animal. They're not responding to them and what the horse is doing. They're just thinking, what's my job right now in order to to keep This horse, where it needs to be, and myself safe. And it's very habitual. And somebody told me I need to lead a horse um, by physically doing the thing. Uh, So it's interesting when we become more embodied. Right. To dominate. Yes, exactly. So we become more embodied. We can begin to work with them from a much more aware, conscious level. And it's amazing what happens when they can feel that from us. And all of a sudden you have horses that are relaxed or letting down in situations that they would normally be very tense in. So it's very
5: cool. One of, when we do, we do a program called Horsemanship and Heart. And so Mm -hmm. this is for horse people that are, that are wanting to learn the elements of natural leadership Mm -hmm. and work on that with their horses on the ground and under saddle. And one of the exercises that we do is working on leading
1: mm-hmm. and
5: horse people roll their eyes and they're so annoyed because of course they know how to lead their horse. And, but we do it with um, like a piece of yarn mm-hmm. or even thread. Mm-hmm. Like, so you can, it's, it's realizing it and it's, it is for the horse because they really appreciate Mm -hmm. um, the influence versus the control. And there's Mm -hmm. such a big difference between trying to overpower and actually building a relationship of influence, but it's also for the person to be able to get a feel of their own influence and to Mm -hmm. realize you can have so much more freedom in yourself and less Mm -hmm. tension and start to break some of those habits. Cause a lot of us were taught to lead our horses at the halter. Yeah, Yeah. Like grip. Yeah. you know and so we're white knuckling it through the relationship and the horse is so confused because they are like I really want to be with you like yeah. haven't we already figured that out yeah <laughs> I love you yeah. we're you know we're a team and meanwhile or we've we've flooded that relationship so much that they're um and we we they we end up flying a kite <laughs> you know where you have a horse at the end of a lead rope and they're they're explosive because of our tension and yeah. we we've built a pattern around that. So when we lead with just a piece of string around that horse's neck and realize that you, that's how sensitive and what we'll do is actually have people do it with each other Mm -hmm. so that you can see you have that sensitivity. You can feel like, and we'll do it blindfolded. So you Mm -hmm. can realize, you know where the person's leading you with with the lightest touch just by presence. Yeah just by your own presence and tuning into that. And so when I think when we realize that we have that,
1: mm-hmm. it
5: helps us to have faith in using that with our animals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think that there's like a doubt that we don't have that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
4: But have we been taught
5: to doubt that? We bypassed it. So we don't have, if you don't have experience using something, mm-hmm. it's likely that you doubt it yeah, because you don't have any competency around yeah. it unless you have like, you're just a protege and you have these like virtuoso moments, right? <laughs> you don't have any data, you know, we're data driven. We're like our brain is yeah. as in our survival brain. It's like, where's the data that tells me I can do this thing. Right. And so we have to have a few experiences, often not as many as we think, but Mm -hmm. it's usually seven. Actually, that's kind of the magic learning number. Mm -hmm. Um, But we usually have to have a handful of experiences before we start to build our Mm self-esteem. That's really what it is. It's just building our trust in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when we have that, our horses trust us. Yeah. Oh,
4: it's so interesting because all of my conversations over the last, I want to say month feel like they're leading to either a conversation around awareness or a conversation around trust and that trust in, in the horse and creating the connection, but it always comes back to, to the trust of the self. So, you know, if you have problems trusting others, which like it's a true reflection of what needs to be worked on personally. And I think the horses are such an amazing teacher of that because they give you immediate feedback. Yeah. Like- No, you know, I I used to be a teacher and that was what I struggled with was immediate feedback because I had all these other things that I had, I was responsible for and I had to do. And, you know, I wasn't, I, I couldn't be right there all of the time to give immediate feedback. And that's how you become an ultimate teacher. And we have that in our barns and in our pastures, we have that that amazing teacher. And it's interesting because you and I've had this conversation already and remind me, I want to come back to awareness fatigue, but I I wanted to speak about this first because I think it's really important. So we've spoken about the equine facilitated learning or the equine facilitated education. And really my, my main focus is on people that own their own horses that aren't getting to really benefit from this or the same ways that these people are coming in and they're going to these programs and they're having interactions with horses through equine facilitated learning. They've never even stepped foot next to a horse. They've never placed a hand on a horse before. And there's these experienced people who have had horses in their lives and we haven't been able to connect those same benefits to owning horses to actual horse owners.
5: It's so true. And I think it's, you know, going back to finding people and groups and models Mm -hmm. that are helping us to achieve that, because Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that it's just been out of our consciousness. It's not, it's been out of our awareness that that is a component that we can have. and it's again back to if you think about like equestrian activities a lot of them are c- competitive based mm-hmm. and so they often get very focused on the task and then bypass the relationship and mm-hmm. so and that's a lot of where that learning can be yeah and so we skip that and I'll, you know and if you look at a lot of the competitive and i don't want to i'm not judging or um criticizing in any way but just yeah. the practices be, I think have to be incredibly efficient because yep. of the stakes that you know the high stakes. Mm-hmm. But they're very much about winning and about the thing you're doing. They're not about how you're doing it necessarily, unless yeah. that's of value to mm-hmm. the rider trainer yeah. team. It's just not, yeah. and so it bypasses that. And then it and then that that's been part of a culture problem in the equestrian mm-hmm. community. Even if you're not a competitor. Mm-hmm. it trickled down into just training in general. Absolutely. Everyone's got a competitive, like, but what would it be like in the show ring kind yeah. of mindset? Yeah. And
4: it's interesting too, because if you were to ask a question to any horse owner, they often answer with that knowing. They answer with the knowing of what their horse has brought into their life. They love the connection with the horse. Their horse is their best friend. They they know the answers, but the practice isn't always in place. Yeah. So the awareness around how to truly facilitate that connection and that love and, and that place of personal growth that our horses offer us. So it's, so well, when I come back to it, I'll tapped on
5: something there. Okay, that, go for it. Well, <laughs> the place of personal growth, and I've learned this as a therapist, but also as a person in my own healing process
1: mm-hmm.
5: and my own story of awakening. And what we talked about around one of the reasons why we dull and numb our sensitivities is because when we wake them up, It's very painful and we don't know how to cope. And so when you try what we're selling here, Nikki, you and me, (laughs) is this idea of personal growth and it scares the crap out of a lot of people. And so if we can focus, it's like we get these little secret benefits of relationship and authentic connection with our horses, but we don't have to like really open up, you know? Like we're, and I think that it's not like, it really scares people.
1: Mm -hmm.
5: Our own pain, whatever is in our story that we haven't healed Mm -hmm. our own trauma Mm -hmm. and also having to be inexperienced Mm -hmm. at something so basic. Mm -hmm. Like I know how to do relationship. (laughs) Don't you know? Right.
4: Like how can you not, you've been in a relationship since the second you were born.
5: I know, but I think, and I think that, um, that, you know, it's, it really is like, well, why are we bypassing it? We're bypass- right. Every, We're doing things for a reason. Like one mm-hmm. of my teachers said, people always make sense. Mm-hmm. Unless they're psychotic, they make sense. <laughs> and so our behaviors make sense. And there's a reason why we're running from that. Yeah. And not everybody has like the courage, desire, inspiration, yeah. or rock bottom to decide that they are going to build themselves from the ground up. Yeah. Absolutely, but I think part of our job is to say it's actually it is scary and painful, mm-hmm. rather than trying to sell it as yeah, like fields of wildflowers and unicorns. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more.
4: There's like yeah. there's this this language that tends to follow this sort of horsemanship or connection based horsemanship that, you know, and I'm guilty of it as well, where, you know, it's magical and you feel this, this connection and, you know, it's very airy and feely, but I try my best to make sure that as I'm having these conversations or as I'm connecting with the people who I work with or my audience that they, I make sure that I, I communicate the struggle. Yeah right this it's so real yeah. and a lot comes up when you get when you get deep and, and i remember the very first time i sat in a pasture it was i think it was 2 years ago last 2 years ago like 3 days ago i had a memory come up on my facebook it was 2 or 3 years ago and i remember i sat during a guided meditation in a pasture and i like i just bald and there was no like there was no i didn't feel there was an emotional trigger i wasn't holding on to trauma that i knew of like i wasn't sitting and working through something big in my life at that time but it was the moment and the horses and the the guidance through the meditation um and it's amazing what comes up and what you yeah. you absolutely have to work through if you plan on meeting Yourself on the other side, totally. right, and truly knowing who you are, and, and finding that trust and and that personal yeah. connection, um, that's there to be grasped.
5: We for. do a lot of running from it, and I mean, I still find myself doing that. I I I struggle with the struggle, you yeah. know, and I think it's important to keep sharing about that mm-hmm. because. It's okay to struggle with the struggle, and to find people that are willing to be open about that, mm. and and also to share that that as you struggle with your own struggle, that there is relief, there can be relief on mm-hmm. the other side, especially if we're supported.
1: Yeah,
5: and it sounds like you're supporting people in such a lovely way. It's so exciting. Um,
1: yeah,
5: I have I had this experience three years ago where the these um these. Thai these Thai monks, the, these Buddhist monks, um, they have a, a monastery down the street from my ranch. They moved in within like three days of when we did, which was so weird. And then we had this incredible encounter in the hills walking where we we came across a peacock, like this like free range peacock and the monks and me and my dogs and this peacock ended up sitting on the side of the hill for like two hours talking working our way through, through a language barrier and just kind of falling in love. And then they showed up at my gate the next day and they kept showing up. And I was like, it's really funny because I've been on this spiritual journey for a long time and this personal growth journey, but I hated meditation Mm. and I'm like, wow. So now the monks are showing up and they're asking to, to meditate together And they're saying that preferably they do it out in the horse pasture. So they're literally like, they could not make this easier for me. They're at my house and they're saying like, yes, bring your dogs and that's fine. And you can Mm -hmm. sit on the ground and like, oh, I guess we're going to work on meditation. (laughs) And so for the first, I would say four months because they came every week. Mm. We've been on an awful pause because of of COVID. But um, every time... I would get to this place in the meditation, I would cry just like your story. Mm-hmm. And I I just cried through it. And then I would ask them about it after, why do I keep crying? And they would smile and say, because you're happy. And I'm like, I couldn't connect the dots. I couldn't, I'm like, but it's not making sense to me. And then finally I realized that one of the things that was happening in that like awareness channel one mm-hmm. As I was finally connecting to my body and bringing my mind into my body, there was like an integration going on. And what they talked about was that when our mind actually is able to go back into the body, it's like it going home. Mm-hmm. I have goosebumps yeah. right now.
4: Look, I- <laughs> like we're on video you guys are on audio but she, <laughs> Beth can probably see the yeah. hair standing up on my yeah.
5: hair right they now they call it they call it the home of the mind it's at I the center it. of the body and they and i realized that the reason i was crying and i wonder if it's true for your story as mm-hmm. well in the pastor is that when we can finally be at home in our body mm-hmm. as a mammal Mm-hmm. which was totally the case I was like barefoot in the grass mm-hmm. and my horse pasture with my dogs and these beautiful monks and mm-hmm. i was I was actually grieving right. all of the minutes and hours and days and years of not being yeah enough. yeah and it took me like four months of like in that space of just i would like oh, here are the tears come again right and and their answer was like because you're happy I, it finally started making sense. I was mm. like, and they really do keep it that simple. I'm like, right, I'm happy. And mm-hmm. I have not been happy in my body and known mm-hmm. how to be at peace and just in a settled place and yeah. stay there. And I, that's a thing to grieve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
4: Wow. Yeah, there's, there's a place for me to reflect on. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. Back. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, I love that whole story and it's the second time that I heard it and I love it even more right now. So, okay. thinking
5: about your story from this morning and that you got to send it. Oh I was, gosh. cause I didn't tell you about encountering this peacock. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And I, so when you told your story this morning about the birds, I was thinking, mm. oh, I, yeah, so they, they stopped you from your
4: oh it was incredible so this morning before i came on the interview with beth i went and my friend izzy and i decided we were going to go for a walk and so we decided we'd go to the bird sanctuary i live less than a 2 minute drive away from this bird sanctuary and i could count on one hand how many times i've been there and every time i go it's an incredible experience i don't know why i don't go more often so we go and we have bird seed or like Sunflower seeds. And we only got probably 200 feet into our walk. And there's a woman sitting on a bench, and she, you can tell how peaceful she is. And then we see all of these animals. There's like, squirrels and chipmunks and these little chickadees and they're, and blue jays and they're flying everywhere. So we just sat down and these guys actually walked up, these older gentlemen walked up behind us and they were laughing and saying, you look like you're meditating. Are you, are you like, and started kind of make poking fun a little bit. And I said, this is absolutely exactly. We were just speaking about meditation in the car on our way to this experience. And then we sit down and we had squirrels, Crawling on us, we had these chickadees landing in our hands, and we were watching the squirrels fight, and like it was, it was amazing. So then I look at my my watch, and I was like, oh my god, I have an interview in twenty minutes. <laughs> like I need to get out of here. But it was, it was one of those incredible experiences where you're sitting and you're you're experiencing it with other people, mm-hmm. and you understand the appreciation for just the connection, not necessarily even the connection together, just to nature and these animals, and they're interacting with you, and then you look around and you're like, "Oh, this is such a great shared experience right now." It's it was pretty amazing.
5: It has all your awareness channels, right, right there. Yeah, and when we're in them, it's you know, and the animals will often light them up, and mm-hmm. so. We want to look for opportunities to do that with our animals and around our animals and and just practice, Mm -hmm. okay, so what am I experiencing and what is my friend experiencing or this chipmunk or, you know, and then, wow, what's happening between us and what's going on around us? And,
1: Mm -hmm.
5: you know, it's the human mind is going to attach story to it and beautiful language and all of that. Mm. But just the awareness of being able to weave together those awareness pieces yeah. just to see it. So that's when we start to have these incredible, meaningful experiences because we're noticing things. Oh,
4: absolutely. And how yeah. cool would it be to start to interact with our horses with that same, i um, like, it was like childlike wonder when yeah. we we're sitting there and watching these squirrels like crawl on us and the birds land on our hands and, to, to interact with our horses with that same amount yes. of awe and wonder and, yes. and appreciation like that would, that that's, a, that's I think what that's they want. A transformative yeah, experience. That is what right they there. want. Yep. Okay. So I want to just touch on, we spoke about the awareness channels and you did speak about the fact that, you know, the, this is how our horses are, would like us to show up is really being in tune with all four of these awareness channels, but you did briefly, say now we're not expected to be that aware all of the time you there are times of break now as soon as you said that the your term f- awareness fatigue came to my mind because i immediately thought of the exhausted mother yeah who just like i even have goosebumps just saying that because yeah. the the mother who never feels like they can have a break from having that heightened awareness um, and that sense of trying to keep everyone safe and everything pulled together. Um, But I feel like the missing piece for her would be that the personal awareness.
5: The herd is the missing piece. Okay. Yeah. And enlighten the personal me awareness here. Awareness of realizing I need to rest and I actually yeah. have someone Oh, that,
4: that. So it's actually the missing yeah. piece is that awareness that other that it's not all her responsibility. Correct. Okay. Yeah. We've oh, well. bought
5: into the myth, and that's how we've set up our neighborhoods yeah. and our right. schedules. And I I think it's a huge component of our epidemic of postpartum depression and anxiety. Yeah. Because our, what's happened in our, the, the female brain has been transformed by pregnancy and birth. Yeah. It is a, it's a different brain. There's so much data around this. It, we have a yeah. completely different experience of ourselves in the world once that yeah. process has happened. And so we become more vigilant. Yeah. Our awareness channels are like, ah, yeah. but we have nothing to support it. Right. So
4: then we never feel like
5: we we can can come out of that awareness. Yeah. And it has to get a dawn has to get past a lot. And so and and I'm having a bit of a moment, Beth, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) What's your moment?
4: Well, just just thinking about the experience of being a mom and those first few months of being, you're never actually fully fully like if you think of rest in general, but literally sleep where yeah. you're never getting into a full sleep because you're always on. Um, my husband's fantastic, but he has never had to get up in the middle of the night with our daughter because I like, it's like a trigger. Like yeah. it, even now she's seven. And if I hear her whimper, yeah. I'm awake and, and I'm there for her. So as a mom, it's very interesting yeah. to think of the fact that I've never trusted that he will wake up and be able to attend to her. So I've been on for seven years, anytime she's
5: present with me. Yes. And even and that is a fatiguing experience for a ah. man. So I just had a colt. my first, the first baby that I've, you know, I bred yeah. my beloved mare, Sally, who's the matriarch of my herd and she's my leadership coach. And Just amazing partner. She's taught me so much about female leadership, Mm. and so she had a baby, and it's been this incredible experience. And watching her mobilize the herd and their different roles to take care of her baby, and how quickly that got up and running, blew my mind. And I had so much grief over my own motherhood process, and how like I'm having a moment too. You've been talking about it, especially as. Yeah. I like, this is so messed up. Like our mm-hmm. system of how we do this and it's not like this in all human culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's like this in Western culture mm-hmm. for the most part. And I'm, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the details of that, but yeah, that's another but, conversation, yeah, but just, I think this idea of not, and it it is about awareness channel one, not realizing when we have need to rest. Mm-hmm and that we have a judgment about needing to rest Mm
1: -hmm. as
5: being weak versus being just normal part of life, human, and then, and then alerting others that that's happening so that they can have our back, Mm -hmm. giving them the honor of supporting us. That's what I saw Sally doing with the herd was like, you get the honor of raising this baby. And they were like, There was some conflict because the rules of the herd changed and the urgency of responsiveness changed and her needs changed. They had to renegotiate the relationships a little bit, but it was so fast. Mm -hmm. Like the feedback and the way they communicated about it. And then, you know, they took on these roles. They haven't given them up. It's two years later. They're still raising that cult. And he, so he has, he he weaned himself. Like they, I didn't, it did not intervene with any of it. I've just let the herd handle it. Right. And she's pregnant again. So I, that, I'm like, let's see where this goes. I'm yeah. just so, and I have, but I have a very multi-generational herd. So I have, I have different ages and, and looking at how they step in mm-hmm. to share awareness mm-hmm. throughout the day. I watch them all day, how they, that awareness shifts. Yeah. There's one horse that's, I call her the queen of awareness, Rosie so gifted at picking up on every little change. So she definitely, that is her leadership gift, but even mm-hmm. Rosie lays down and rests and gives right. it over and throughout the day. And how many and it, her horses are in your herd? So I have five right now. I'm usually at like a eight to 10 I like that number here with yeah. like the size of my property. So I have a new horse coming. I adopted a, an untouched Mustang. So I'm going to get her <sighs> in two weeks to learn with her and from mm-hmm. her. And then I have a baby on the way. So, oh, but I sometimes will take on friends' horses for a period with like mm-hmm. a baby and a foal full or something.
4: I'm in the midst of over the last two days because I'm like, doing this in between while I'm while I'm running and doing chores and then and then coming back. But I've been listening to Elsa Sinclair's episode with Warwick Schiller on his Journey On podcast. And I have heard of Elsa, but I haven't really gone into her story until now and I started like searching for the movie last night and and diving into it a little deeper and telling my husband about it and getting excited told one of my students who's like so invested in horses told her about the movie last night and uh, I was like oh I have to like I have to watch this I absolutely have to watch it so it's It's amazing
5: um, I yeah I watched it um the Taming Wild movie. Yeah. Yeah, I watched it like, um, and then there got to be part of like a Q and a with her, which was really cool. So I was exposed to her work and I've, I've always had the desire to, to do a Mustang Mm -hmm. adoption. So I'm really excited to, to go through that process with zero expectations (laughs) of where, where we're headed. But, um, Yeah, okay. Warwick and Robin are local and have become friends. And Robin actually went through my training program. Oh wow! Yeah, yes. So they you just, and I have spoken about that actually. Yeah, but yes, that's they right. Just that's great. The natural uh, awareness or the natural leadership awareness questions at a clinic like a week ago. It. Yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. It's really a game changer for mm-hmm. horse people to, mm-hmm. and to realize. um, that there are times we don't have to show up in awareness and we're mm-hmm. not up for it. And that's okay. Like yeah. it's a but we we want to change our expectations of what we're doing. Yeah. Well we're not Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And that's right.
5: So and that's okay too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well yeah, if I'm not really able to show up, I'm gonna rest for a while until I am. I'm not gonna demand anything of others unless right. I'm gonna ask them, hey, would you would you partner to just lead me yeah and sometimes I do mm-hmm. that with my animals I'm like I'm not up for being in a, a leadership role I'm not even up for like partnering and awareness I'm an arrest and and I watch them show up for me yeah but I know we're doing that yeah so you're aware of your awareness, <laughs> your awareness. yeah yes and they are too and I think that's what makes it yeah. safe yeah. yeah absolutely okay there's a lot
4: to this conversation, um, I feel like we should probably leave it there so that yeah. we can both both soak on it. Allow the listeners to soak on it, yes. and it'd be great to carry on the conversation because I feel like this is the direction my work is going in. Every time my husband and I teach a clinic, I like this is this is. Where I can't even help but go with people, and I'll I'll sense when somebody's kind of ready for it, and so we're supposed to be teaching obstacle work with horses. It's like the perfect opportunity. So I'll like sense whether somebody's ready, and I'll kind of like take them off to the side. And my husband's looking over and going, "Are you on task? Like, are you doing (laughs) what we're supposed to be teaching? Like, is the person you're working with on the same page as us? Essentially?" And I'm like, "Mm, "We got a little waylaid." We're a little out to left field right now. So you're going to have to just bear with us. We'll catch up later. Um, and when you do, it'll
5: be so much better. Because oh, it, it is so much better. Yeah. Whatever the bypass was that yeah. you're sensing is needed there. Yeah. Trust that a hundred percent. Yeah. It's so much fun. Oh my God. I love that you're the courage to go there is mm-hmm. what we need from each other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. to urge each other on, like hearing yeah. this from you, it gives me courage awesome. to keep going. Yeah. So.
1: Okay.
4: Well, yeah. let's end it there because it, this has been a beautiful conversation and I appreciate you being with us so much. It's been such a special hour. It's been an hour. Yeah, look at that. Right on the money. So thank you again. I can't say thank you enough. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please leave a review and share it with your friends. To learn more about me and what else I have on the go, skip on over to NikkiPorter.ca. Thanks again for listening. And we'll connect again next week. Until then, remember, you have the power to take the reins and live the life you've always wanted. You just have to step into the arena with an open heart and an open mind.